0: This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Oyster Point. This content was captured during a synchronous virtual symposium. Polling took place during the symposium. Hi, everybody. Dr. Laura Perryman in Seattle, Washington, and this is a fun topic. So, yeah, I am so lucky to be joined by two Canadians. This is like, you know, North American alliance here. This is awesome. Uh, Dr. Jess Castine, who is an associate professor at uh, Nova Southeastern University College of Optometry in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Dr. Mila Brugic. He's a partner at Premier Vision Group in Bowling Green, Ohio. I'm so lucky that we're here all together. This is awesome. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate you and uh, appreciate you being here this evening, guys. Um, So, This is going to be a level set, what I'm going to do right now, because I think it's always important whenever we're talking about dry eye disease, that we're talking about the prevalence and the risk factors as well, too. We're going to go into a little bit of the diagnostic section, because I think that helps us respect and appreciate some of the new treatments and some of the data that we're going to be talking about. The reality, and we've known this for over two decades at this point, it's a chronic disease that's inflammatory in nature, and we also understand that it's a multifactorial disease of the tears and also the ocular surface that the tears actually support and it does include discomfort visual disturbance and tear instability most importantly it disrupts homeostasis which is really the term that encompasses the disruption of all those things and it's associated with increased tear film osmolarity which we can measure clinically it also increases ocular surface inflammation which we can measure clinically it also may be caused or may lead to mybomian gland dysfunction. There are mechanical traumas that may lead to inflammation of a patient with abnormal blinking profiles. And trauma arising from this issue of poor ocular surface wettability can lead to things like lid wipe epitheliopathy, conjunctival corneal staining, and all of the other things that we see associated with this condition. Now the reality is, is this is cyclical. And if you've been to any dry eye discussion over the last decade, you've heard this. And the reality is, is through our diagnostic criteria, the things that we do in our exam room with the technologies we have, we're always trying to look at this and say, Where can we ideally intervene to help stop the cycle? And what we're doing clinically when we're looking at the diagnostic information that we're gathering and collecting from patients, which includes things that we see at the slit lamp, things that we hear, things that we record patients saying, things like standardized questionnaires, and also some of those objective metrics that we take. We're saying, all right, what do we think is the leading cause or the thing that's going to cause most or is causing most of the signs and symptoms that we're seeing? and really putting our first therapeutic efforts in that realm in order to try and break this cycle. And that's where we become very detective-like when it comes to our clinical practices. Now, I will tell you that I've seen these statistics, I've shared these hundreds of times, and I still to this day am a strong proponent that this is an understatement of what's actually happening in the United States. 30 million means there's less than 10% of individuals that are dry eye disease patients. And the individuals that we just see in our practices just simply are so far above that, that I can't imagine that these statistics are are in fact true. And I think they're an underestimate of what's actually happening. What we do know is that about half of anybody with a chronic disease is diagnosed. That holds true with glaucoma, and certainly dry eye is not immune to that. And only about 1.5 million individuals are being exposed to some type of pharmaceutical or prescription product. It's important to understand all of that as the backdrop here, as we start to look at the epidemiological data. Now, Here's the reality of all of this. These are estimates, and these are population estimates. And a few things creep up here. The first is that this condition will tend to affect females more so than males. Can it affect males? Of course, absolutely. But does it affect females more so than males? Absolutely. That's where the research is clear. The second thing that's important to understand is that, again, when we're looking at this prevalence data, we realize that it's more prevalent in the aging population. But again, when we start thinking more sleuth-like with our diagnostics, we realize that it's it's much more present than we think it is. So what are some of those predisposing factors? Always important to know when we're talking about anything that's chronic and progressive in nature. Certainly anybody that's older has an increased risk. Gender, females more so than males are more at risk. Environmental factors, the thing that we're literally all staring at right now is an environmental risk factor. Also local humidity levels. Systemic medication use is one of those things. Topical medications with preservatives can also exacerbate a lot of these issues. Previous ocular surgeries, contact lens wear, systemic diseases, lid margin disease. All of these things can predispose us to dry eye disease. So the question now becomes, how do we in an optometric and ophthalmological practice? How do we efficiently evaluate these individuals and diagnose them effectively and put them on that most appropriate path? We're gonna talk a little bit about diagnostics. And you know, this is one of those things that becomes so frustrating to the individual who really doesn't embrace these patients and say, we have to take care of them because they will describe their symptoms so differently depending on what time of the day it is. What happened that morning? If my eyes are dry, but I walk out of the house and in that morning, my daughters hug me and say, dad, I love you. You're the best. And my wife says, honey, you're my dream man. I love you. And I'm going in for my dry eye visit. My eyes are just going to feel better. I'm not going to be complaining as much. If I walk out of the house and my daughters are telling me, dad, I need a ride. Are you going to pick us up from this? And my wife, as opposed to giving me that nice kiss and telling me I'm her dream man, she She looks at me and she says, are you going to be home like after work when you're supposed to be? Those are things that will set a mood or a precedent that are going to alter the way patients respond with the symptoms they they describe. So what we love to do is these standardized questionnaires. There's several, OSDI and speed, but the speed in our office just tends to be one that by the nature of its name, the acronym, it it is speed. It, It does go fast and it does acquire a lot of information very, very quickly. We understand that there are several symptoms, and these are all reported very, very differently. About a third of our patients, their main complaint with their dry eye is the symptoms of fluctuating or blurred vision. About three quarters of patients will have some level of discomfort. And then about 90% said they're already trying to use artificial tears, whether it be to alleviate fluctuating vision or to make their eyes feel more comfortable which leads us to our poll question, which one of these diagnostics do you perform in your clinics to assess dry disease? And click all that apply. tear osmolarity, inflammatory biomarkers, MMP9. There are newer tests for lactoferrin and IgE as well too. My boaming gland imaging, Schirmer testing, non-invasive tear breakup, interferometry, tear meniscus height, ocular surface staining, lid margin exam, corneal sensitivity, all right. Let's see what people are selecting here. Laura, if I was to ask you to pick just one on that list that like, yeah, they're all important, but the one that you would prioritize like at the highest level of important, what would you put that at or what oh, test? Oh, that's a tough one. You're making me pick from amongst my favorite <laughs> children. Uh, the <laughs> most important, I might have to go with tear osmolarity. It it tells me a lot about the general homeostatic state of the ocular surface. Interested in what you guys think though. Jessica, what are your thoughts? You know, choosing just one ocular surface staining is what I rely on most heavily. So I'll tell you guys that um, personally, my favorite one, and the only reason I describe it, it's not the most accurate, it's not the best, but it's awesome as a screening tool and it gets me started down the path and it and it lets me see several things very very quickly and that is our fluorescein dye with a ratinum filter and a cobalt blue light we actually have it every single slit lamp in our office has one of these on it because we use it absolutely all the time in addition to our anterior segment imaging so let's see the poll results okay y'all non-invasive tear film breakup time Okay we got tear meniscus height my bombing gland imaging okay and there's even a lot of the biomarkers that are being measured as well too that's fantastic so again we're dealing with people that are passionate about this. And Laura, you described this, osmolarity testing. It is important. There are some rules with it. You should wait at least 15 minutes after any type of topical anesthetic, or ideally before that's been placed on the eyes, at least two hours after any drops like artificial tears or medication have been applied to the eye that day. And then, you know, the new testing platform, the care really does this very, very well and extremely efficiently in busy optometric practices and ophthalmological practices. And the results are now displayed in seconds. So again, it does give us a good gauge immediately what's happening. Most importantly, this can be safely done by a technician and it gives us immediate results on where essentially the salt concentration is of the tear film. And we understand that the higher the osmolarity the greater the dry eye disease, and also the manifestation of a lot of those symptoms. And and we realized very, very quickly that even artificial tears in and of themselves, they're sometimes built in a hypotonic manner to try and counteract some of this hyperosmolarity. Now, there are other tests that we have, matrix metalloproteinase-9. This is another point of care test that we have access to where you're literally taking a small sample from the patient's lower palpebral conjunctiva, snapping into the test collector, dipping it into a a controlled buffered saline bath, and then you wait for the results. And the results are either positive where you see a red line and realize any intensity of red line is a positive or a negative. Now, there is an importance to differentiate between the invalid test where you don't even see the blue line happening. But what's interesting is in this well where you see the results of the positive testing, it's a concentration dependent response. It's an antigen antibody response. So the more MMP9 you have in the tear film and in the well, the darker that red line is going to be. I'll tell you that one of the things that we do on every patient at every encounter, because we want to make sure we catch these patients so that they don't leave our practice either being fit in context, being referred for refractive surgery or cataract surgery, or purchasing eyeglasses with a tear film that looks like the one on the left-hand side or an ocular surface that looks like the one on the right-hand side. This is captured utilizing a cobalt blue light, a rat number 12 filter held in front of the slit lamp oculars and also after fluorescein has been placed on the ocular surface. And again, we can see so many things, tear film breakup time, corneal conjunctival staining. We can see lid wiper epitheliopathy. We can see the line of marks and any type of irregularities that are present there. And there's more advanced technologies. My advice always to people is don't get caught up if you don't have one of these technologies because there's still ways that you can measure my by literally taking a a transilluminator and shining it up and through that lower lid while viewing the patient at the slit lamp with all of the slit lamp lights off. That's what we do as a screening tool. And if there's any type of results that show that there's any type of dropout, we then order the infrared imaging. But it's so important because... This really is the analogy in glaucoma to the optic nerve head structure. And we now have a way to track this over time because our goal is to really make it so that we preserve the meibomian glands that are in fact left. We're also looking for function very similarly to the way that we measure functionality with the glaucoma suspect and the glaucoma patient through visual field testing. And that's done through gentle pressure on the surface of the lid margin. These are three patients who have meibomian gland dysfunction showing three very different appearances. The one on the left, visible capping. The one on the right actually looked like they had a normal lid margin until active expression occurred. And you could see how thick those secretions are coming from the glands. And the bottom right, where you see a non-obvious meibomian gland dysfunction, Function. It looks normal, but when you tempt expression, you don't see anything coming out of those glands. Now, there are other things that we look at, but we realize that a lot of it is oftentimes conflicting with the signs and the symptoms that we see. Here are two examples, low Schirmer strict breedings, but a high tear film breakup time. We can also see evidence of staining, but normal Shermer or tear film breakup time. So this creates a little bit of clinical confusion sometimes. And symptoms certainly aren't everything that we thought they were. I graduated in optometry school at a time when we were taught that if it burns, it's dry, if it itches, it's allergy. And we now know that we can completely throw that um, out because it's just completely different philosophy at this point. So literally what we're trying to do here is we're trying to take all the diagnostic information that we have piece it together as best as we possibly can so that we can now pick the most strategic therapeutics.